The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, the Eagles appoint a former Palace manager and why the USA should do the same. Plus, international break. Say hello to Tedesco, hola to De La Fuente, and welcome back Kuman and Chris Hutton. We ask, can Kane break Rooney's record? And can our panel remember who even manages Portugal? It's the Totally Football Show. Well, Jimbo is following suit with several players and giving this international break a miss. But don't worry, Kelly Summers here with you. And there are some familiar Totally voices in the shape of Duncan Alexander, Carl Anker and Charlie Eccleshare. Now, Charlie, you came mm. back from six months paternity leave this week, straight back onto none other than the Tottenham beat for the Athletic. At least you picked a really quiet week to come back. Mm, very much so. Yeah, I really thought I was going to miss the sacking. Uh, on Saturday night <laughs> and I've been like cling I've been like I really don't want to miss it it'd be annoying and just about didn't but yes here we are on Thursday morning and still it drags on but yeah it was uh, yeah came back on Tuesday and quite a maelstrom to return to but you had a little joke didn't you about Conte's future when you went on paternity leave <laughs> yeah well my colleague uh, James Moore who's also a regular on the View from the Lane Spurs podcast he said to me he thought Conte would be gone by the time I got back and this was in September. And I said, no, don't be silly. Like, he'll still be there. It might be a difficult season, but he'll still be there. And uh, I was proved right, just. But I mean, it was a moral victory for James because really, he, <laughs> you know, by the time I got back, he was all butt sacked. And uh, yeah, he called it. But yeah, the narrowest of margins I held on. Speaking of North London, it was a big midweek for enigmatic Arsenal players of the past. I was so happy when I knew we had Duncan on this podcast because I feel like this is this is really going to play to your strengths, Duncan. Now, Emmanuel Adebayor retired from football on Tuesday. Meza Ozil did the same on Wednesday. Now, Duncan, you often can't move on Twitter for Ozil mm. stats when it comes to assists and chance creation. Scratch my itch. Give me some. Tell me some wonderful Meza Ozil stats. Well, there are a lot, as you say. Uh, I think 2015-16 is probably his kind of peak season in some ways, but also in some ways the reason it didn't really work for him, I guess, in the Premier League. He, he created 146 chances that season, which is the most ever recorded in a, in a single Premier League campaign. He also got 19 assists, which is pretty good, given the record all-time is, is 20. But he had 15 of them in his first 16 games. So it looked like, I remember at the time, it was like he was going to absolutely smash the record. And then it really slowed down in the second half of the season. And if you remember, that's obviously the, the campaign that Leicester won the league. And Arsenal, it's a massive missed opportunity because they really should have won the league that year. Um, they obviously beat Leicester twice, home and away. Um, and obviously had that famous selfie in the dressing room after the home win in, in February. <laughs> and then from then on, it didn't, didn't really work out. And I think part of the reason was that Ozil wasn't able to keep up um, his form of the first half of the season. But yeah, I mean... I will... Uh, Mm, I will say a lot of the the reason why quite a few of those chances created by Ozil didn't become assists was because Olivia Olivia Giroud, yeah, dreadful second half of the season. He he went on a massive drought. We've got producer Charlie here, and he's sort of mildly nodding his head, going, (laughs) "The record." Yeah, we we we've been on this podcast many a time talking about not just Mesut Ozil, but Kevin De Bruyne, but also and Trent and Paul Pogba last season when he got seven assists and. I'm just basically now convinced that the 20 assist record is cursed and Thierry Henry has some form of juju and when you get to close to 15, <laughs> it just activates yeah. so you're not allowed to hit 20 assists. 
Well, obviously, Kevin De Bruyne did equal it a couple of years ago, but then wasn't able to go beyond. But I think you're right in the sense that, unlike goal scoring, assists creating is A, reliant on another player, but also teams can work that out during a season. You can block off the supply lines. And our friend Michael Cox did a good piece about Ozil on The Athletic this week, and he pointed out that, that Giroud and Ozil didn't necessarily work mm. that well together as a pairing. And I think, yeah, that, that season is, is evidence of that. Well, also the supply line to the assister, because Ozil lost Santi Cazorla for mm. the second half of that season. And had he not, then he might have laid on even more chances. And even Giroud... Uh, with with the greater volume of chances, his drought might have uh, his drought might have stopped. But I do think with Ozil that you know a lot of people are pointing out that he his career was you know quote unquote wasted and and he didn't achieve what he should have done. I mean he won the World Cup, which is pretty decent. Um, and I think there is a space in football for that sort of player who is a kind of you know enigmatic, sometimes brilliant, sometimes terrible. Uh, sort of figure I think you know I mean ultimately I guess Arteta was was proved right to to get rid of him but but I do think some of the some of the memories and some of the some of the goals he created at Arsenal are some of the best they've done in the last sort of decade. This is probably also a good time to point out you mentioned it there Duncan the fact that Arteta potentially did the right thing do we all remember when Ozil tweeted trust the process with the sad face heartbreak emoji when Arsenal were bottom of the league 18 months ago seemingly a dig at his former manager and I get the feeling that potentially in a couple of months if all goes to plan for the Gunners this one could be doing the rounds on social media again. Yeah it was I mean not long before he'd been live blogging Arsenal games hadn't he? in a sort of... Mm. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, a weird development that no one quite saw coming. As it, as oh it got gosh. As it got weirder and weirder uh, as his Arsenal career came to an end. What, that was once he'd been exiled by Arteta. Yeah, God, it was bonkers the way that all ended, wasn't it? How do we reflect on him overall, though? Because... It was a roller coaster. When I think of Ozil in the Premier League, Carl, I think of some amazing highs, but then some really low lows. He's a remarkable football player on his day. I was there for his performance against Leicester City, the 3-1, mm. where you know, Arsenal score one of the best team goals of the last five, six years. Um, and he was integral to that turnaround. But also I think Mesut Ozil... Mesut Ozil is a very complex character in a time of football where we like, we like heroes and villains and very easy narratives. Uh, and Mesut has been the victim and the perpetrator of things that are just a bit too confusing for your average football fan. He reads things that aren't just to do with football, uh, mm. and that can confuse people who only want to talk about football. Uh, he's also, as you bring up with a tweet, he's also a bit passive-aggressive. You know, He likes to dig. <laughs> I he love that, dig. though. We love that as mm. neutrals, don't we? As neutrals, I think it's fantastic. I think if you're a fan of a football club and you've got someone on a very high wage who isn't uh, 8 out of 10 every single day and is a little bit passive-aggressive, you're like, oh, come on, just be more like what my dad <laughs> wants a football player to be, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, he had a similar sort of you know career to, to Paul Pogba in that he wasn't the leader in the way that English football often wants leaders to be, but he was a sort of artistic maverick in the way that we love talking about once they leave. Mm. And, and now it's the international break and... You know, Twitter during international break is full of interminable, repeated discourse. So now we're just getting loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of clips of Ozil scoring loads of goals and loads of... What happened to the number 10? Hmm. Mm. But I think, <laughs> to that point, it's quite interesting, I think, that Ozil is almost like the first football Twitter footballer. You know, he mm. emerged around 2010, mm. which was obviously the first social media World Cup. 
and he kind of got social media better than any footballer I think in in the 2010s and it, as Charlie pointed out you know he was he kind of used that for nefarious uh, ends towards uh, towards the end of his Arsenal career and I think he he was able to drive and build this sort of community of fans just for him I mean you know so those or Twitter was a fairly um, passionate place should we say yeah, I mean, he was one of the first to put as well. Yeah, because he was so polarizing, and I think it was it was frustrating with him because you could you you kind of had to pick a camp uh, rather than just sort of accept the fact that he he could be infuriating, but he could also be amazing. And I think as well with these footballers, it's so often framed by what happens afterwards. And so I think if Arsenal were still finishing eighth and playing dismal football as they were for you know Arteta's first half season. Uh, then we might, you know, then I think we might be in a world where you've got Arsenal fans longing for the kind of aesthetics of Ozil. As it is, I don't think Arsenal fans are exactly longing for him because he did become symbolic a little bit of that late Wenger era, era period of promise, but not quite delivering on that potential. And, you know, the, the idea that they were a bit of a soft touch, I think Ozil for a lot of people embodied that, whether that was fair or not. Do you know what? I think producer Charlie and I have gone wrong a bit here. We don't need to do the rest of the script. I think we could probably <laughs> fill the whole podcast just debating the highs and lows <laughs> and the bonkers nature of Ozil's um, career. We do have to have a word on Emmanuel Adebayor as well. He scored 30 goals for Arsenal in the 2007-2008 season. But, Duncan, we don't really remember him for that. When you think of Adebayor, the first thing you think of is... That celebration for City <laughs> against Arsenal, which is, I would say, one of the top five Premier League moments without a shadow of a doubt. Um, Definitely. So. And Emmanuel goal against Arsenal. And he sets off to celebrate like never before. To run the whole length of a pitch, to celebrate in front of your former fans and to create a sort of moving collage of rage amongst the supporters. <laughs> and it is amazing because... You know, football fans love to love to dole it out, but on the rare occasion that a player does does give it back, the the sort of sense of outrage is is hilarious, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think an underrated player. You know, he's obviously scored on his debut for Arsenal, for City, for for Spurs as well. Um, you know, the only player in Premier League history to score a hat trick home and away against the same team in in the same season. Obviously, yes, that was Derby County. I was going to say six of those 30 goals were against uh, that Derby. <laughs> he, he scored more goals than Derby that season, which again, sounds probably more impressive than it actually is. He also got four assists in one game, in one Premier League game. And, and last summer, we did a series on uh, kind of best Premier League performances ever. And I wrote the one on mm. him. And it was interesting talking to like Harry Redknapp and Clive Allen, who was manager and coach. And they said... They've never seen a player who the divergence between their best and worst was so stark. I mean, and they'd say what was interesting as well, you just had no idea. It wasn't a player who, who might train well in the week and you'd say, okay, yeah, he's he's in the mood. You'd have no idea until kickoff, more or less. And then he could either be nine, ten out of ten as he was that day we got the four assists, or he could be utterly awful. Uh and I think that's pro that inconsistency is probably what stopped him from you know, pushing on and becoming a really uh, effective striker, as, as it looked like he might in those early years at Arsenal. Something I always think about with Adebayor is his loan move to Real Madrid. Yeah. So loan move to Real Madrid, he shaves off his dreads and he, he says, I've shaved them off because I want to be more professional and be a Real Madrid player. He wore the number six up front and his goal scoring record in that half season was really impressive. He got, you know, he, he had a really good playing 
partnership with Cristiano Ronaldo, and he slotted in pretty seamlessly, only to to, to return to to his parent club. If we got more of that added value, or if the contract negotiation with Arsenal had been uh, less Adebayor esque, I think we might have remembered him more fondly. I have always been a fan of his social media, um, and <laughs> he's got he you know he built a very very nice house for himself in his native homeland of Togo, uh, and he, you know he's, he's sort of a village elder and hang, and you know is always looking after people in and around the complex. And something I always find very funny is how everyone, all of his friends and all the family members, anyone who comes around is dressed head to toe in Spurs training gear, right? And like he's, he's very clearly just took way more training gear than he was supposed to have taken. And there's just, he has like five or five games and, you know, half the teams in Spurs tra- training gear, half the teams in Palace ones. I'm like, go on, uncle. That's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? Fair play, because footballers don't get paid enough. They've got to get what they can out of their football clubs, haven't they? Um, well, we could talk about both of those players all day, I think. But let's kick the show off properly now by talking about one of Adebayor's former clubs. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network and sponsored by LiveScore Bet. You can get the latest football betting odds at LiveScoreBet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Yes, Crystal Palace announced on Tuesday they had replaced Patrick Vieira with the man he replaced 18 months ago, Roy Hodgson is back again. That's two retirements, right? I've, lo- I've lost count now. Um, we spoke about this on the podcast earlier in the week um, and Dom Fifield came on and said that he thought it was the right move for Palace with the current situation they're in. Do you agree, Carl? Uh, kind of. I feel that. like that noise sums up <laughs> so much of Twitter's reaction to it. I know you shouldn't gauge anything off Twitter's reaction, but that, if that one soundbite could sum it up, I think that's it. Yeah, like, if, okay, you know, I can see Roy Hodgson knows the club, he knows a couple of players there, he will prioritise the defence and get him playing a neat, competent 4 4 2 for a little bit. Fine. But I was tired of Hodgson's palace in Hodgson's last Premier League season. And I was very excited for for some form of reboot. Um, it looked as if Vieira was genuinely getting a culture club thing going on. And I, I I really don't think I think Vieira was more hard done by that by the fixture calendar and the setup there and teams had to play rather than the fact the football was okay. You know they should have been more fun than what they were doing, but it's hard to be fun when you're playing all those hard teams in a row. So Roy coming in, okay, fine. This will be fine. They'll probably stay up, but now what? But I guess that's all <laughs> they need. Is I mean it is a stopgap. Um, that it's very hard to find someone at this point who would be available and willing to come in and uh, and and you know start building for the future because it's just about results for these next ten games. So I can see the logic in it, but I can also see why it's really really underwhelming. And when I first heard the rumours, I kind of thought it was a joke, which tells you I did te- where, I did te- where my head where I, my head was. At. I took te- Matt Woosom, the the Crystal Palace right for the Athletic, and I just went, surely not. And he went, oh, see, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, well, okay, fine. Charlie, I do take your point, though. With the position they're in, it, it kind of, I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it does make sense, doesn't it? You can understand when you look at the other managers out there. I've said so many times this season, when clubs sack managers, it's all well and good sacking them, but you also have to bear in mind who is out there that is going to fit your club after. And he fits Palace, doesn't he? He must mm. He must know everyone from the tea lady to a lot of those players. And he is the only man, Duncan, that's kept Palace in the top flight for four seasons in a row. That is true. 
Um, I mean, there I'm is, trying I, here. I'm trying. I, yeah. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because obviously, the last game of last season, he was at Watford, as you'll know. Thanks Kelly. a bunch. And he did a lap of honour at Selhurst Park, and that did not go down well with Watford fans, <laughs> as I gather, as far as I gathered. Um, and it's Confirmed. funny because, yeah, because his he's had this weird record in the Premier League where, and without sounding like the pool guy of the day to day, you know, West Brom he had a win potential of thirty six percent, good. At, at Liverpool, it was 35%, not good. Um, Blackburn, 35%. Fulham, 34%. Palace, 32.5%. So he's very, very consistent. 11% at Watford, so it really did not work there. But 35% win rate for the rest of the season will keep Palace up. So, And as Carl says, the eight of the last 10 games are against teams in the bottom half. They, they have been a bit unlucky with the way the fixtures have fallen. But... And it, you think back to last season, everyone was so excited about how they were playing under Vieira, mm. and it was, and the Palace fans were, and it was like, this is a new era, this is a more expansive time, and it does feel like, if, you know, like the, the headmaster of a school has gone, and they've got some sort of trendy younger headmaster, and then, and then a year in, they've gone, no, this isn't working, let's get back the, the get strict retirement. Yeah. You ever know when a TV show gets too weird, and like on the sitcom? Yeah. Like, oh yeah, you know, you know <laughs> they've like sexed it up because they moved to a bigger network, and then the writers like, no, 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 too weird. And let's let's wheel it back. Season two of Friday Night Lights got too sexy, and there was like a murder in there and whatever. I was like, oh no, we don't want to do that. This this is meant to be a TV show about high school people playing football, so let's make season three just like quite standard. And that's what's happened. To and they were Palace. coached by Roy Hodgson, of course. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. He was also in Goodnight Sweetheart, so yeah. <laughs> it does show, doesn't it, though, the desperation and the cost of needing to stay in the Premier League for clubs because Steve Parrish really backed Patrick Vieira in terms of saying it was a new era for the club. And it was, it was really exciting, it felt. But obviously, when all of a sudden they're staring down the barrel of potential relegation and also looking at their remaining fixtures, as you said, they do look pretty favourable. They just need to stay in the Premier League. Can he do it, Duncan? Yeah, I think he will do it. I guess for Palace fans, they'll hope that he does it in a way that is not so impressive that it's kind of <laughs> persuaded to say, well, another year, Roy, another year. But, but yeah, I think he'll do it. What about you guys? Have we got consensus? Everyone's like, I can see everyone's face. It's almost like, yeah, well, I think I think he'll do it, but we're not really behind it. It will be fine, but it's just. I didn't ask if it will be fine. I asked if they would stay <laughs> up. He, he, they he, will he, be fine. They will be fine. They will okay. stay up. Uh, you know, well done. You've won, but at what cost? Our, <laughs> our, our collective entertainment. <laughs> yeah, I think they will. There, there are a lot of. T- I mean, yes, there aren't many points between them and uh, getting relegated. But there are quite a few teams. So, yeah, I think they'll just about have enough. Yeah, it's fascinating, though, that relegation battle, isn't it, really? Like, the points between them is just remarkable. And it's so much more fascinating when my team got relegated last year and aren't involved in it from a (laughs) neutral point of view. So I'd like to pass on my personal thanks to Roy Hodgson for not putting me through a relegation battle this year. Uh, Anyway, moving on to happier things because Watford won't be getting relegated next year either because they're not going to get promoted this year. Let's talk Spurs, Charlie. We've alluded to the Mm. fact that it's been a busy week. We thought by now, as we've also alluded to, that maybe we'd be talking about Conte being out of the door at Spurs. He's not. What is the latest? Yeah, it's actually been quieter than... It's been eerily quiet. And for me and all the other Spurs correspondents, there's this sort of slight feeling it's a bit disconcerting. Um, I think the reality is they there's a lot to sort out. You know, sacking a manager is not an easy, straightforward process, and especially then when you factor in he's got a number of support staff who would probably also have to go. So there's a lot of negotiations that have to happen. They also don't really need to 
have got rid of Conte and have a new guy in place until early next week because of the internationals and they don't play until uh, Monday week um, at Goodison Park. So I think it will have to ramp up before then. But I think that probably explains why we're at this point on Thursday. And it seems like, why is he not gone yet? Um, that's why it's sort of dragging. But then there is the question as well as to whether they, the extent to which they're trying to get in a replacement for a permanent replacement for Conte now, or whether they give it to Ryan Mason on an interim basis until the end of the season, as they did when they sacked Mourinho a couple of years ago. So there are big questions. And I... You know, I, I suspect they're doing all they can to ideally. The ideal is they can find the right guy now who can come in and be a permanent successor, and they can then remove this sense of kicking it, kicking the can down the road. And you know, we all saw two years ago they ended up in this pretty chaotic, embarrassing search for a new manager that dragged and dragged and dragged. They really don't want to have to do that, and they were incredibly quick replacing Mourinho with Pochettino and Nuno with Conte. Basically, within a day, they had a new manager. So I think that's how they want to operate. It's just whether the right person is available now. And there are some good names out there who are available now. But then how much do those managers want to take the job now? Or do they want to wait until the summer mm. when potentially there's going to be... So, I was talking about this some the other day. I mean, there's so much churn potentially in the summer. You know, Real Madrid might be looking for a new manager. Bayern Munich might be looking for a new manager. So not to mention... Crystal Spurs Palace will well. be looking for a new manager. <laughs> Crystal Palace may well be as well. Um so for, if you are a an out-of-work elite manager, you might think, well, I'll just bide my time a little bit and see where we are in the summer. And also, coming in at this stage of the season is pretty tricky, as clubs like Palace and others this season have found. Yeah, you wrote a really interesting article that I was reading on The Athletic as well, Charlie, didn't you, about how the players might have been a bit hard done by in the last few years, um, timely considering what Conte said. Yeah, I just find the whole this this idea that Conte was pushing forward and, and many agreed with and fair play that, you know, the players are to blame. I accept that they should take a portion of the blame, but I also find the idea that they, there's some sort of fundamental flaw that all Tottenham players have that makes them unmanageable. I just find that really far fetched. Like most players of that level, you have to be extraordinarily talented and motivated and determined to make it. So this idea that there isn't a manager out there who can get a tune out of them, I just find ridiculous. And also that they've had three managers since Pochettino. Bear in mind Pochettino, they did perform incredibly well and they actually punched massively above their weight for about five years. The idea that, well, you know, we've had Mourinho, Nuno and Conte, what else can we do if, if they don't perform <laughs> under those managers? There's no manager out there as if those three cover like the whole spectrum of football management. There are a lot of really good managers out there. And, you know... I always use this example, but you look at a team like Liverpool under Klopp, Andy Robertson, Jeannie Wijnaldum were relegated from the Premier League a few years earlier. They then win the Champions League in the Premier League a few years later because they have the right manager, they're in the right structure. So I just find the idea that, yeah, Harry Kane and all these very, very good players that there isn't the right manager out there for them, I just don't believe it. Uh, I think it's about getting the right appointment uh, at the right time, as they did with Pochettino, and they've got to do that again. It's not easy, but there is definitely a manager out there, or many probably, who could make this team successful. And it's funny as well, you talk about the similarity between those managers and, and how the Mourinho and Conte spells have, have been so similar in the sense that they started quite well. And obviously Spurs had 17 points from the first seven games this season. Well, um, I went off on paternity leave. Yeah, it was all your fault, Charlie. <laughs> um, which they is their joint, top. Yeah, joint best start to a season they've ever had. Um, 
and Mourinho had a really good start in his sort of first full season as well, and then it really did tail off. But yeah, like you say, there's many different ways to manage a football club and get the best out of players. So you know, I think it would make sense for Spurs to take a bit of time and and plan a bit more longer term because I think Mourinho and Conte aren't long term managers. It was like we need to either get into the Champions League or you know or, or win a trophy so at some point soon. Okay, well, it is time to move on from club football now. Next up, Italy take on England. This is the Totally Football Show, sponsored by LiveScore Bet. And with Bet Builder from LiveScore Bet, you can combine markets from thousands of options to create your own bet on the biggest football fixtures from around the world. For example, if you think that England will win away in Naples to Italy on Thursday night, there'll be over four yellow cards in the match, and both teams will score, you'll get combined odds of 7.5 to 1. And don't worry, if you can't make up your mind, there are loads of pre-built quick bet options for you to choose. Bet Builder from LiveScore Bet. Building a bet just got easier. Find out more at LiveScoreBet.com or by downloading the LiveScore Bet app on Android and iPhone. Odds are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Full account terms apply. And of course, please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Mark Chapman and this week on the Athletic Football Podcast we're bringing you a two-part special on the future of football. What will the expanded 48-team World Cup look like and is it actually such a terrible idea? Plus UEFA against FIFA, a Super League in disguise. How would you feel if your team became part of a multi-club model? There is a lot to get stuck into. Matt Slater, Adam Crafton and Laura Williamson will be with us. Just search for the Athletic Football Podcast wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is the Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. It's the return of international football. Have we missed it? Well, yes, I'm working for Channel 4, so the answer is definitely 100%. Everyone's <laughs> going to be tuning in. It is, of course, the first chance to see these teams since the World Cup. So it leaves us all asking, doesn't it? I don't know about you guys, but I kind of, at this stage of the season, I find myself scratching around like, gosh, the World Cup feels like ages ago. It feels like so much has happened. Where is international football? Where did we leave it? Well, hands up, guys, if you forgot that Roberto Martinez was the new Portugal manager. <laughs> I did. Like, I knew it happened, but I was like, oh, yeah. 
Anyway, Martinez's reign gets underway at home to Liechtenstein tonight. As we record this, Belgium, Spain, Netherlands and Ghana also have new managers. Brazil and USA have new interim bosses. France and Wales also have new captains. I've probably missed out a few bits there. Not as much change, though, in the England camp. They've got a pretty tricky opening couple of games, though, which is, of course, qualifiers for the Euros in Germany next summer. But the top two do qualify, so it kind of takes the jeopardy out of things. But... Ukraine, North Macedonia and Malta are the other three teams. And what did North Macedonia do, Duncan? Uh, beat Germany. And knocked Italy out of the World Cup, qualifying. Yes, and that, yeah. That's such a Duncan so, response. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I was like, that was not the response I was quite clearly teeing you up for. Uh, you know, go left field. But yeah, they've, they've got a history of some, of some good results. So it's a potential banana skin, uh, as are Ukraine, I think. Yeah, definitely. England haven't won since 1961 in Italy, Carl, and they've been hit this week by some key players dropping out, namely Marcus Rashford. Yes, who, who's just posted that he's in New York with a very lovely snood and jacket on. Um, I'm, I won't say what I want to say about <laughs> certain football players. Always makes not, good podcasts when people do I'm that. not going to say what I want to say about certain players all of a sudden getting injured before this international break, but... Um, <clears throat> Funny, isn't it? <laughs> I, I do wonder, should there be some sort of punishment that like, they can't play the first game back for their club as, as some sort of deterrent to stop these tactical... Pl- I mean, because Harlan's out as well, isn't Harl- he, for, for Norway? Yeah, Harlan pulling out as well w- was a sort of... Funny, isn't it? Um, again, I'm not saying anything. Well, I'm just mildly raising my eyebrow. And it's like the very... Your eyebrows are at, like, at the top of your head. There's no mildly about it. <laughs> It's like the very junior version of a player retiring from international football at the start of a qualifying campaign and then going, oh, do you know what? I'm sort of missing it a bit just as the tournament rolls around. Um, Chiram, yeah. Zidane and was there one other head of that 2006 World Cup who all did that. God, this is the nostalgic podcast today, isn't it? Mm. The stories that we're telling. Uh, let's bring it back to the here and now then. Marcus Rashford, Mason Mount and Nick Pope. They're the other two that have pulled out with injury. Fraser Forster has also been called up. Not sure too many of us saw that one coming, particularly a few months ago, given the fact that he hasn't been back in that Spurs side for too long, Charlie. Yeah, the big Spurs story of, uh, of the week at the moment is the, the renaissance of, of Fraser Forster. But he has done well, to be fair to him. I think there were, you know, people were quite worried um, just because I hadn't really seen him, but he's come in and been a pretty able deputy. I do think just on right, I do think it is a shame, the Rashford, because Rashford, Saka and Harry Kane, I mean, mm. that mm. has got to be one of the most... Delicious front threes. I mean, they're all just in ridiculous form. They haven't got bad players to drop in, though, either, have they? No, but that would be, yeah, so mm. perfect. Well, I think that was the big excitement of this week, was seeing how Kane and Rashford could, could play together. Obviously, didn't didn't happen too much at the World Cup, and Carl might know more, but obviously Harry Kane has been linked with Manchester United, so it would be good as a little a little mm-hmm. forerunner of Test that run. to see how, they, yeah, <laughs> see how they fit together. But we're denied that now, so it's a shame. Of course, all eyes tonight will be on Harry Kane. He's already broken one goal-scoring record this season. He's currently level with Wayne Rooney on 53 goals. It feels pretty inevitable now that it's going to happen tonight or Sunday. Surely, Carl. Oh, yeah. Harry Kane penalty international break just feels... that That's coming. You know, the, the sort of scrappy penalty and Kane scoring before kissing and doing that jumping fan gesture celebration. He is a remarkable triumph for England. Asterix, I'm still annoyed he didn't square it to Sterling in 2018. But, you know, we can't all be perfect. Would he have been offside? Wasn't there an offside oh, potentially there Just as well? square it! 
I'm sorry. No, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> We're not we're not going back down. We've been down too many memory lanes yeah. so far. We're not going down that one as well. And it's going to be interesting, though, because, of course, we've seen Harry Kane continue to score goals for Spurs. But the last time we saw him in an England shirt, we know what happens. I almost feel like, Carl, if England do get a penalty, he will want to take it and just get that done, won't he? Show that was just a one-off, as we know it was. Yep, just a one-off. A uh, heck of a time to have a one-off. But, yeah, it was just a one-off. You're still not over that either, are no, you? If you're not no. over 2018, there's not I've, a chance you're I've, over that. I fell to my knees in Athletic HQ when it happened. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think what we'll likely see from England uh, against Italy is a continuation of that sort of Gareth Southgate suffer ball, be very, very tight, try and maximise your set pieces um, and, and don't do anything too out of the, you know, don't push the boat out too much. I think in the following games, that's when you might see the likes of Ivan, Tony and others. But for now, we're going to get a, a good old fashioned Kane centric performance mm. uh, and a, a couple of, you know, possibly a Harry Maguire thumping header from a corner kick as well. It's the first time the finalists from the previous tournament have ever met in qualifying for the next one. Obviously, it's, the fact it's the first game is, is pretty cool as well. But a few people, I've seen a few people concerned that England are in a group with Italy, but England's qualification record is ridiculous. Their last six uh, qualifying campaigns, they've only lost one game in that whole thing. Mm. That was the Czech Republic on the way to the last Euros. So they're incredibly consistent. And the fact that, the fact that two teams go through is pretty easy really it's not like you know like the, the 80s and 90s where it is, was... have we got that on record that Duncan has said this group is going to be easy for England is that what you've yeah. just said I mean yeah, it's hard not to qualify isn't it for the Euros if you think nowadays about the, famously the England and Italy were in the in a group for to qualify for the World, 98 Cup, World 98. Cup yeah and that really was jeopardy you know England obviously lost at Wembley uh, Zola scoring past Ian Walker mm. with his hair. Matt Leti- the Matt Letizia game. <laughs> yeah, in fact, that game, Stuart Pearce played in it as the reigning manager of the month in the Premier League, which is a tremendous <laughs> thing. <laughs> and then obviously England got the, the nil-nil in Rome in the return game. Though Italy, did that, Italy had to play a uh, qualifier, didn't they, against Russia, I think? They did win. Yeah. Because they, they then went further than England at the subsequent yeah. World Cup. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it did feel like qualification was much harder then. Yeah. It feels like it's... And particularly with 24 teams, it's kind of... I mean, some people won't like this, but it almost feels like the big teams should almost just get through. It seems a little bit of a... a, (laughs) I know, that's bad. That is bad, but it's it's kind of true That's another controversial statement. We can say that because we're English, and I guess you're counting yourself as that England are a big team. Theoretically, yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think we're going to move on um, from this one. Carl, save us. Ghana in action on Thursday afternoon in Africa Cup of Nations qualifying. And as we mentioned, they've got a new manager. Yes, Chris Hutton, uh, Brighton and Newcastle fame has taken over. The he's nice been, guy, Mr. Nice Guy. He is so a lovely nice, man. Everyone maintains he, he's the nicest man in football. And yes, that, that really is real. He is fantastic and, and very generous with his time. He's had three or four roles since the last African Cup of Nations at the start of 2022, where Ghana had a disastrous tournament and he got brought in first off in a technical role. And it looked as if his main job was to convince dual national internationals to, to, to play for Ghana. Uh, and then Ghana you know, went off and almost had a transfer window, recruiting the likes of Anaki Williams uh, and Tarek Lamptey and others. Then he seemed to have an advisory role with Otto Addo, who was the interim coach. And that was sort of teach us Chris Hutton-style pragmatism so he can beat Nigeria in the World Cup qualifier. Did that, got through and away goals. Continued that at a World Cup campaign where, I mean... They lost to Uruguay, but Uruguay didn't get out of the group either, so I was very happy there. Um, 
Uh, and now he seems to say he's, he's taken over full time. He is the head coach. He, he's had a he's had a lot on his plate recently. Uh, the Ghanaian FA has, has arranged two or three events in uh, in Accra in tribute of Christian Atsu now, and they're now you know, they've begun the healing process and from that, uh, mm. and now that they're focusing on on playing football again. The Ghanaian FA is very weird. Uh, depending on who you ask, they are either an extension of the Ghanaian government or, or the Ghanaian government every now and again meddles involved and says, naturally, you should be picking this player instead. So it's a big job for him. Uh, I'm still waiting for maybe Eddie Nkaya and Callum Hudson-Odoi to change their minds and play for Ghana. So maybe Chris can, <laughs> can get in the area there, what with him being the nicest man in football. But uh, yeah, big change, big change and a big job. I will be watching with anticipation and probably ending up screaming at uh, Kalmadine Sulemana because as Southampton fans have learned, <laughs> he's really good at dribbling, but very erratic at his final ball. And we got the raised eyebrows at the end there once again. Okay, on to Friday and France take on the Netherlands. A fair bit of change for both of these sides too. Now, firstly, France have a new captain after the international retirement of Hugo Lloris. Kylian Mbappe, what do we make of this decision, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, it was him or Griezmann, wasn't it? Sounded like we're going to get it. I mean, Mbappe, you can see why. I mean, he's so he's so talismanic already. It's the, it's the end of an era, you know, after Lloris. He was there for such a long time. Uh, and I think he was a really good captain. You know, he was really well respected. Certainly, you know, he's known for his leadership skills at Tottenham as well. I mean, I think it, it makes sense. Mbappe's going to be there for a long, long time, it feels like. Um, and I don't know. I mean, like at PSG, there's been... It's, it's such a complex club, isn't it? There, you know, trying to manage all of those egos and and all of that. But I'm sure you know he, he's got everyone's respect in the dressing room. Um, I mean, they've they've got so many good players coming through as well, France. So they, are, I, I'm really interested to see how they get on in this this next cycle, as it feels like a few of those old heads like Larice are kind of eased out of the picture. Something that took me by surprise. So when I read the initial report, I was under the impression that it was a uh, a dressing room vote, and Mbappe won. And then when you read further, I went, oh, Deschamps just gave it to him. And, and that was raised eyebrow. Like, oh, OK. I didn't, didn't quite see Mbappe and Deschamps having that sort of relationship just yet. I thought Mbappe would become France captain eventually. But this is at 24. I mean, he's not, re- mm. he's, he's, he's what, the third most important person in France culturally? It's, it's ridiculous how much <laughs> heft this man has. He's not really a football player anymore. He's more like an aircraft carrier. He just put all these other football players and teams on him and then you just ship him to parts of the world and go, go on, I dare you, do something. <laughs> um, Antoine Griezmann is, was one of the other standout candidates, as you said, Charlie, and he's reportedly a bit upset with Deschamps for snubbing him for the captaincy. Has he got a point? Do you understand why he feels a bit hard done by Duncan? Yeah, I think he was absolutely brilliant at the World Cup, obviously playing in a deeper role. And I do think there is something about playing in central midfield that feels more captainy than a, a sort of... Because you can see everything. You're in the middle of it. Yeah, all. you can... I know what you mean. Yeah, and I, you, I don't think this will affect Mbappe for the points Carl's just made, but you can see some players like Mbappe getting that getting that accolade and, and it affecting them. I mean, Mbappe at some point will be the captain, the manager and the president of France at the same time, I imagine, <laughs> so it's fine. But, but yeah, I mean, but then again, I, I think Griezmann's not the sort of player that will let that affect his game. He's... Um, you know he's had a good season as well, so I think, yeah, I think it's fine. I mean, the, what would the French team be without some sort of internal uh, <laughs> dispute going on anyway? That's not the only dispute. 
Reportedly, Didier Deschamps and Karim Benzema have also had a disagreement around They're the circumstances that led to Benzema being sent home from Qatar with injury. And this led to one of my favourite insults. Benzema called Deschamps a clown <laughs> on Instagram. If you're going to go for your manager, what a way to go. You are a clown. I mean, it's, it's a dangerous game to play, isn't it, Charlie? <laughs> It's very, I mean, clown is very, clown and fraud are kind of the go-tos, aren't they, for, for calling out Clown's managers. That's just funnier, isn't it's on it? on trend. Just, I'm quite partial yeah. to a bozo recently. Nice Bozo, I haven't heard that one for oh, years. Oh, you're wrong. Bozo. <laughs> I'm going to use that. But it goes back to like the fact that, as you said before, there does always feel like there's always something bubbling away in the background with France. And it feels like potentially there's two subplots here to whatever happens this weekend. Yeah, I think that's right. And it will be framed by by the results there's i mean it has felt like a bit of a an unhappy place because obviously the the last euros as well there were those big disputes with france and it all kind of unraveled and yeah historically speaking that has been the case i guess at this point we're so early in the qualification cycle i don't know i i don't think it will make a huge amount of difference but as you get towards the tournament itself these things can matter um, so yeah, I mean, Deschamps will want to get it sorted anyway. Do you need Karim Benzema in Euro 2024? So he, he misses the tournament, he misses the, the World Cup due to a thigh injury. Deschamps' handling of it was odd. As France got to the final, there was this sort of weird, oh, look at this weird technicality. So Karim Benzema might get a World Cup medal. And the weird technicality was he, he was in the World Cup squad and named. Deschamps said <laughs> Deschamps said he was not going to bring Benzema back because Deschamps is while you know there are many questions over whether or not he's a he's a a very good tactical mind one thing that is very clear is that he takes the dressing room very seriously like his job is very much I don't want an implosion in the style of the 2010 World Cup and it seemed like he went I don't I don't want to bring Benzema back just before the final because that would affect the the way this dressing rooms working and the morale is, uh, is working and that's that's his big thing so that makes sense based on the fact that Deschamps is a you know a thoroughly boring uh, and wants things to be thoroughly boring in that dressing room so if Benzema wants to throw his toys out the pram in the France team okay fine I think Deschamps has good reason to go I don't necessarily need you I've got Colin Moani I've got you know Marcus Thuram I've got all of these very good young players coming through who can press from the front and Benzema he's not had a great season like do you really need him in 2024 I don't think so well there's change for the Netherlands who they face too this will be the first game of the second spell in charge of the Netherlands for Ronald Koeman he replaces Louis van Gaal who did the job three times and Koeman previously replaced Dick Advocaat who did the job three times seemingly Duncan not a wide pool of managers in the Netherlands yeah, I don't actually have exact numbers on this, but it does feel like Netherlands are the country that most, you know, recycles manager. I think that's fine. I think, you know, they have a particularly systemic way of playing that it kind of, they just, it's more of a figurative role sometimes. But I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure Koeman will just come in and, and pick it up. I mean, it seems to be like a lot of these managers might struggle sometimes at club level, but they just go back in and, and you know, it's relatively fine for them at, with the Netherlands. So, um, I mean, at least Kuma won't have the issue that he did when he was at Everton of having a red bauble on his Christmas tree, which caused outrage. So, <laughs> I forgot that happened as well. <laughs> it's very strange. Uh, Nick Miller did a fantastic piece when Kuma was announced just to explain the merry-go-round and how basically to be the Dutch national team manager, you need to have either been an Ajax manager, a Barcelona manager, or, you know, you have to have played very, very well for the Dutch national team there's been no I mean to my mind 
I don't think there's ever been a foreign manager of, of the Dutch national team. And they are always going to... Eventually, there's a point where the national team manager of the Netherlands is asked, when are you going to play 4-3-3? And if you have, mm. uh, if you ha you have to play four three three, or you have to have the press conference that explains why you are not playing four three three, and Van Hal spent a lot of the World Cup going, look, we don't play four three three because I don't think we have the wingers, um, and Koeman looks like he's going to play three five two again, carrying on from Van Hal, and he's been asked again, look, where is the four three three? We have to play four three three. Do you not know about Johan Cruyff? Um, <laughs> weird times. I think the Dutch are just cursed to not win the big trophies because of their adherence to playing football in a very certain way. Oh, okay. Um, just quickly, Carl, you were in Amsterdam on Sunday watching Feyenoord's win at Ajax for the Athletic. Feyenoord going six points clear at the top of the table. And you did see some of the new additions to the Dutch squad in action. I did. I did. Uh, they've just called up. Hang on, I'll get the names up so I can I can pronounce it properly. It's Mats Wiefer and uh, Lutreel Gedrutria. Um, oh, Lovely. That probably sounded too German in my pronunciation. I'm really sorry there. I enjoyed um, it. Classic, the Classic is always a very interesting fixture because, if, you know, if you look at the IX11 and the Feyenoord 11, there's always at least one player that you're going, yep, you are going to be linked to a Premier League club for very, very soon. Uh, so, you know, we had Mama Kudus in there who, who missed the chance to, to make it 3-2 for IX. He's been linked to Everton and other clubs. Um, Feyenoord's captain... Uh, whose name I also cannot pronounce, but it's a very, very young, very, very good midfield for Turkey, will be linked to a Premier League club this summer, I guarantee it. And again, for all the talk of Dutch football being 4-3-3 in nice passing triangles, it was a classicer that that owed a lot to just thumping headers from defenders, two of the goals were, were headers. And you know, Edson Alvarez, who you know, was linked to Chelsea and, and almost went on strike to try and get a move to Chelsea <laughs> last summer. Um, he, he was Alex's one of Alex's best players as well. Yeah, Classic is a very, very good game. Uh, very musically minded as well. Ajax play like two different theme songs before kickoff and they play Bob Marley at yeah, halftime half as well. Um, so yeah, I, I would recommend if you, can, if you can attend one of these games. The away fans aren't allowed in due to uh, wow. historic uh, fan violence outside the grounds. Uh, but if you can go in as a neutral and, and hide your... I mean, they're all nice. They all speak English. But yeah, I, <laughs> I can recommend going to one of those games if you can afford it one day. Travel tips on this podcast as well. Brilliant. Well, the Republic of Ireland are also in this group. They host the French on Monday night. Northern Ireland, by the way, are in action this Thursday night in San Marino. Michael O'Neill's first game back in charge. His first spell saw them qualify for their first ever Euros, if we could forget. You can read a really good interview with him by Michael Walker in The Athletic. Moving on to one of the other games on Friday. 7.45 kickoff between Sweden and Belgium. Only one real place to start here. At my age, you can't think future, you think present, even if I am the past, present and the future. Who said that? It can only be <laughs> the man who's always the describing man. himself yeah. as a lion. <laughs> He's always comparing himself to a lion. The 41-year-old Zlatan Ibrahimovic returns potentially for his first game in Sweden in a year. He's played just three games for Milan this year. But of course, as always, we're all talking about him, Duncan. Yeah, he's good at good at getting people to do that. I mean, it's mad, really. I mean, he's been scoring goals since 1999, which is insane that we're now in 2023. I was eight. Yeah. I didn't oh, actually, no, that, I was nine. But... I've just got rid of... Just, just got rid of you. I don't know my own age. Brilliant. He's... um. He's the same age now as Latan as Brian Clough was the year he guided Forrest to promotion to the top flight. So wow. he he's been around, but he's still got that star quality. I mean, not sure it's a very long term look for Sweden, but yeah, I mean, it will. It's definitely increased the um, the interest in this game. That's for sure. 
I mean, he's the same age. He's he's old. He's a year older than the manager who might who might win the Premier League this season. It is remarkable that he's playing for Sweden because Sweden had a big Ibra problem in their play for three or four tournaments as he got older and less mobile it became a very heliocentric model of get the ball to him and then we'll try and, and like scab a one more draw. And then when he left, especially Euro 2021, it looked as if Sweden might, you know, release the handbrake, play a bit more interesting football. Alexander Isak popped up as well and like, oh, here we go, fun Sweden. And then Isak's had some injury problems and not quite caught fire in the way we thought he was. And, and now we're going back to, to 41-year-old Ibra. Yeah. Like, ah, ah, no. But... Isaac fun. Isaac was brilliant the other night for Newcastle at, at Forest, and yeah, it, it's international football does these sort of retrograde steps. It's like Ronaldo being named in mm. the Portugal squad. It's like that was surely a time to draw a line under. I know he wants to chase yet more landmark records, etc. But yeah, we know that international football is not as advanced as club football. But the kind of adherence to or the sort of devotion to talismanic players that have helped you does does hinder countries, I think. Yeah, or as Carl was saying with Benzema, I mean, I do wonder if part of it is the managers don't have the authority that they have at club level mm. to say to these guys, you know, I mean, is Robert, I was thinking that with Ronaldo. It is mad that he's still playing. But is Roberto Martinez going to have the authority and the clout to say, nah, you're not, you're not coming, you're not playing, you're not going in search of these records you're desperate to break? He should do, but apparently not. Yeah, Sweden playing Belgium on Friday night will be Belgium's first game under their new manager, Domenico Tedesco, the former Leipzig and Schalke manager, still just 37 years old. And of course, a reminder, no Eden Hazard. He retired from international football after the World Cup. Next up on the Totally Football Show, we're off to the States. We're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to that own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network and sponsored by LiveScoreBet. You can get the latest football betting odds at LiveScoreBet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Stepping away from UEFA competition for just a moment, the USA travelled to Granada on Saturday in the CONCACAF Nations League. Now, the US MNT are the holders and they've had a hugely eventful few months since losing in the last 16 of the World Cup in Qatar. Coach Greg Berhalter's contract expired at the end of the tournament, but his hopes of staying on were seemingly dashed by an investigation into his past behaviour. The Athletics' Paul Tenorio joins us to explain just what's been going on. There's been so many twists and turns, it's difficult to summarize it quickly, but essentially, you know, it went from a controversy around Gio Reyna's um, work rate or lack thereof, a disappointment and not being a starter ahead of the first game, Greg Berhalter talking about that at a leadership conference and those quotes leaking from what was supposed to be an off-the-record summit, Um, our report with The Athletic that the player he spoke about who he didn't name was Gio Reyna and some details about those disruptions at the World Cup camp. And then obviously from there, uh, it, it spiraled even more into the, the Reina parents, uh, Claudio Reina, famous U.S. captain at two World Cups, Danielle Reina, another former U.S. women's national team player, the parents of Gio Reina, going to U.S. soccer with details of an incident that occurred 30 years ago, 31 years ago, at the University of North Carolina involving Greg Berhalter and his now wife, then girlfriend, um, in, in which he pushed her down and kicked her twice, and and that led to an investigation. Um, And then the results of that investigation just came out last week. So it's been months of new stories coming out, new details, questions about the future of a team that, you know, when when the, the game ended against the Netherlands and Qatar, it felt like there may have been actual positive momentum around the team. And I think since then, it's been anything but that. And, and now there are, are pretty big question marks around the U.S. men's national team going forward into this 2026 World Cup cycle. Yeah, you mentioned that Netherlands game. I was actually at that game in Qatar and I thought that the U.S. played really, really well. So as an outsider, it felt like there was going to be a really optimistic period to follow. Alas, obviously everything else has happened. When you talk about the questions that are being asked at the moment, what are they and, and how do you see this progressing moving forward? Well, there are two big ones, and that is who is going to be the sporting director of the U.S. men's national team and who's going to be the head coach. Uh, Greg Berhalter's contract expired at the end of 2022. So currently the U.S. is operating under an interim manager, Anthony Hudson, who was an assistant coach on Greg Berhalter's staff. The sporting director, Ernie Stewart, left the federation to take a job as the essentially the sporting director of PSV. Um, he was born in Holland, his family was living in Holland, and he was kind of commuting transatlantic to see his family from Chicago to Holland. So it was an opportunity for Ernie Stewart to go home. But now that means that there's been a delay in replacing Greg Berhalter or making a decision about whether Greg Berhalter will come back as national team coach. U.S. Soccer says they will hire the sporting director first. That sporting director will then hire the head coach. The question is, how long is that going to take? And and really, there's a huge, huge question mark around who will replace Ernie Stewart because the direction of this national team could go so many different 
ways depending on the personality that's in charge of that hiring process. Well, Anthony Hudson is the interim manager, but who do you think is in the running to become the permanent boss? You know, the name that strikes out to me that, that I think is really, really interesting in this conversation is Patrick Vieira. Obviously mm. recently left Crystal Palace, and he just checks a lot of boxes for me in what I think the U.S. men's national team program should be looking for in this managerial position. First of all, he's familiar with American soccer, which I think is really, really important for whoever they hire as the coach because you do need to understand I think the culture of the country, of the team you're guiding, and the the player pool. You're going to have a few years to to become familiar with it, but you don't want to take too far of a step back. Well, Patrick Vieira coached successfully in Major League Soccer with NYCFC under the City Football Group umbrella, and so he's familiar with this this country and with the players in Major League Soccer. Um, He is somebody who has been successful at the club level. I, I know it wasn't the ending he would have wanted at Palace, but he's been successful in multiple different stops. Uh, he's, he's shown that he can coach young players. His start with City Football Group was with the second team. Um, he has uh, a, a big personality. He's not afraid. He's, he's, he holds himself well in front of a microphone. I think that's also crucial for a host nation of the World Cup. Whoever coaches this team is going to be put in front of the media a lot in the lead up to 2026. And he's Patrick Vieira. He's got a, a huge reputation in the game. He's a, an all-time great and I think that does two things. One, it's marketable for U.S. soccer. But two, he, he can command any dressing room that he goes into. And so dealing with these younger players like Weston McKenney, Christian Pulisic, um, you know, you go down the list, uh, Tyler Adams, Gio Reyna, he's been through what they've been through. He's had the successes at the club level. Uh, right away, he commands their respect, but he's also going to be able to relate to many of those players in that locker room and help guide them. So for me... He stands out as, as maybe candidate number one for the U.S. if I were, if I were running the coaching search for U.S. <laughs> soccer. Yeah, it certainly would be an interesting appointment. And as you've said there, in so many ways, it really does seem to fit. Now, you spoke to us from Qatar about the USA's desperate need for a striker. Let me put this name to you. Following Balogun was born in the USA. He scored 17 goals in France this season, potentially someone that's on Patrick Vieira's radar too. He's on loan from Arsenal and he actually put out a really cryptic Instagram post last week that suggested he wasn't very happy at not being in the senior England squad. Could we see him represent the US, do you think? Well, they're, they're doing their best, I think, to, to woo him. Anthony Hudson did admit to us in a press conference last week announcing this roster that he has been in touch with Valerian Balogun's team. Uh, I don't know who that is. I don't know if it's family members, if it's agents, if it's all of the above. They are speaking to him, and, and they certainly have made clear that they would like him to be a part of this group. And what's interesting is when you look at the last cycle, one of Greg Berhalter's biggest strengths was recruiting players. And I think Eunice Musa is maybe the best example of that. A player who yeah. was born in New York, uh, grew up the first few years of his playing career in Italy, then, then moved to London, uh, came up through the Arsenal Academy, now playing in Spain. And what Greg Berhalter did in that approach was that he brought Musa to camp with no strings attached. Just be around the players, be around the team. Here's what our vision is for you. Um, and that, that ended up winning Musa over, and he surprised England by committing to the U.S. I would expect that there's similar type of approach here with, with Falaire and Balogun is, is saying, come into camp, see what this team is about, here's our vision for you. The, the difference here is the timeline. You know, he doesn't have to commit one way or the other. If, you're, if your goal is the 2026 World Cup, you have a few years to make that decision um, and a and few years to wait and see how the depth chart for England plays out at that position. But there is a very clear path for him 
in not just into the World Cup squad for the U.S., but into the starting lineup at a, a position that remains a position of need, even as we see Daryl DK come back into the squad this time around, Ricardo Pepe scoring goals back in the squad. You know, that, that, is, that is the number one position of need for this U.S. team. Portinorio there, in case you were wondering who the other interim manager we mentioned earlier was, Brazil under-20s manager Ramon Meneses is taking charge while they search for their replacement for Tite. Brazil face World Cup semi-finalist Morocco in Tangier on Saturday. Brazil don't have another competitive fixture until September. Okay, on to some of the other games then. Croatia versus Wales is taking place on Saturday. This is going to be so interesting to see how Wales line up, how they fare. It's a complete new era, isn't it, Carl? Yeah, yeah. I think this is the good chance to reboot and draw a line under the class of Euro 2016. It's always hard when you're a smaller footballing nation and you have to say goodbye to your golden age. I'm gone in. So when Ghana fully went, yeah, that, that World Cup 2010 squad is, is, is gone. We're, we're going to have to tough it out a little bit. It was sad. But the longer you, pro- you prolong that, the more it, you know, the more difficult it is. So... Yeah, good luck to Wales. I think they should be fine-ish. <laughs> Not the most convincing fine I've heard. <laughs> I mean, that's one argument. The I guess the counter argument is that if you think back to the Ireland in the nineties, they you know they never really bounced back that well from their golden era passing. And and it's interesting. I think that as Bale retires from Wales, it looks like Ireland have actually got a player that could be a world class player potentially in Evan Ferguson. And it's you know that's quite a neat potential you know shift perhaps but um but yeah I mean Wales obviously still have good players but you wonder how long Aaron Ramsey will will be around as the mm. as the new captain he feels a bit like a natural successor to Bale and that he's someone who I think of now just entirely as a international footballer uh rather than a club one I think as well it must be hard for a lot of these players to say goodbye because they clearly love all playing for Wales so much it, it's been such an amazing journey they've been on such a good atmosphere and just on that the continuing the theme of players either retiring or not they're up against Croatia have Luka Modric still playing for them <laughs> and seemingly just the nev- ageless n- yeah never getting slower or I mean just getting better and better Elsewhere in Group D, the other teams involved Turkey, Armenia and Latvia. Well, on Saturday, we're going to see the first game in charge of Spain for Luis de la Fuente. They take on Norway. Of course, de la Fuente replaces Luis Enrique and he's won the European Championship with both Spain under-19s and Spain under-21s. He also got a silver medal at the 2020 Olympics with the under-23s. What are we expecting from the first team, from the seniors, Duncan, under him? I mean, I think it's probably a time of mixed emotions for Spain in the sense they've got a lot of you know really good players coming through your your Gavis your Pedris etc but we saw at the World Cup that they they kind of got a little bit stuck in their way of playing um they obviously had a had a massive win um and then that was about it really and, and they did play that same way and I think it, it would be good to evolve a little bit and and like a lot of teams they are you know not necessarily super strong up front as well so I think this is very much a kind of a transitional qualification period for them and they're probably quite glad that they don't have to face Erling Haaland in this game Yeah, you'll play no part in this international break After picking up a groin injury we're not getting into whether he's actually got (laughs) a groin injury though Just talking before about Rashford, Saka uh, and Kane as a front three that Erdegaard and Haaland were we to see it would be a sort of partnership anyway Mm. to kind of rival that you think about I mean those five have struggled to find I mean they've 
they would all be in contention, you'd say, to be player of the season so far this this year. And you think about the number of brilliant through balls that Odegaard's played this season. You know, he's made mm. some tremendous through balls and, and that's one thing that Haaland's maybe been looking for more of at City. And it is, it is a genuine shame, unless you're Spanish, that they won't be playing <laughs> in this game because it's been a long time since Norway had two such elite world-class players. So, um, yeah. Speaking of Spain, some Manchester United news, Carl. Their Europa League quarterfinal opponent, Sevilla, sacked their manager, George Sampaoli, on Tuesday. Now, domestically, they're just two points above the relegation zone. Who's in the hot seat now and how do you see this one playing out? Because big few weeks for them. Yeah, it's uh, the former Ibar manager, Jose Luis Mendilibar. Uh, I apologise if I got that name wrong. I will learn that for when he never You said it lovely and with conviction. Old Trafford. I'll, I'll get it right there. I'll be like... Mr. Mendilibar. And then I'll go, actually, it's this. And I'll go, ah, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so he will be taking in charge. I mean, Sevilla have been really, really odd this season. So, yeah, their their squad is bad-ish. Yeah, they took on Alex Tillis on loan, and Alex Tillis wasn't very good at Manchester United last season. So, yep. Uh, and the, the previous seasons of Sevilla, they, they've sort of... They've always had this idea that they're very clever in the transfer market and, and they often centre things around one big loan signing. And the one they did last season was Anthony Martial and that was a minor disaster. Uh, and the monkey error of him being regarded as the smartest director of football has lost its luster a bit as well. So the sensible thing to say is Sevilla aren't going to be very good in Europa League. However, you know, a certain former Manchester United man used the term football heritage. Um, so to to I think a quite a few Man United fans are quite nervous about the prospect of, of facing the the record Europa League winners uh, at this stage of the tournament. Yeah, they've never failed to win the Europa League once they've reached the last eight. It's remarkable, isn't it, when mm. you think about that? Manchester like, United have lost two of yeah. their last twenty plus knockout games, uh, and one of them was to Sevilla in the semi-finals in that sort of one-off elimination thing in Cologne. So uh, yeah, it, they they give me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> I love that phrase as well. Um, elsewhere, big result for Chelsea in the Women's Champions League quarterfinals on Wednesday night. They won 1-0 away at Lyon. Guru Wrighton with the only goal against the holders. Emma Hayes' side will look to finish the job at Stamford Bridge next Thursday. Meanwhile, though, Arsenal trail 1-0 from the first leg in Germany against Bayern Munich. And the Athletic also report that Herve Renard is set to become the new France women's manager. If you've ever watched an AFCON, you'll know who Herb Renard is, or if you watch Saudi Arabia at the World Cup. Duncan, you're nodding your head away at me in agreement. Mm. What do you think of this? I'm a love Herb Renard. I mean, I was a big fan of when Zambia won AFCON. You know, they, he did it in yes. such a, did not have the best squad by a long way. And they had the I think lowest pass completion rate in the whole tournament. But, you know, he got that team much more, some of its parts. Um, and yeah, like you say, he's one of the most unique looking managers out there I mean I mean I, I genuinely do wonder how many white shirts he buys a year you know is there an, <laughs> is there a fresh one for every game um what's the what's the washing regime like so um and I think it's really good as well that he you know he, it's a really big name as well to go into that job so uh yeah good producer Charlie has written on my script here and I'm I'm saying that producer Charlie wrote it because I kind of I like the question, but I also don't really want to take full ownership of it. <laughs> Is there a more dashing manager in world football? He's <laughs> there very you go, Carl. he's very handsome. I call him handsome Herve Reynard. Very you know very memorably when he he won the 
AFCON with Ivory Coast. Uh, so famously, he's, he's a manager who's won two AFCONs, two different teams. He, he removed his white shirt um, after the penalty issue out and someone overlaid uh, Whitney Houston and I will always love you to, to that to that. <laughs> was video. that you? It was not me. I was not the one who did it. I was not the one who did it. I want to clarify that. He's, he's a very nice man. Uh, and also, you know, we, we all saw his, the video of him at halftime talking to Saudi Arabian players when they, were, when they were goal down against Argentina about, you know, what you need to do. What are we doing here? This is a pressing. Pressing doesn't mean you will go high. Messi, at the middle of the pitch, he has the ball, you stand in front of the defence. He's very, very good at international football. And I think, I'd say the last... 15 years we've we've come to an understanding that international football is is a little bit more divergent from from club football and you know Roberto Martinez says you get three training sessions in international football to teach what I would expect to teach over 60 training sessions in charge of a club so to be able to get good pressing structures and to get a team to play good football especially you know Duncan's just given the stats from that Zambia team that Zambia team yeah okay their their passing numbers weren't fantastic but once they got to the semi-finals no one was stopping them. And that that AFCON triumph is one of the greatest AFCON triumphs in the last couple of years. I, you know, there was there was a moment where their captain from their previous legendary Zambia team lifted the trophy and he, he lost the number of his teammates due to a plane crash as well. Um, and Herb Reynard gave that, you know, sort of gave props to the Zambian teams of the past. And when he won AFCON with Ivory Coast, he was sort of like, this is really good to do this, but also it's a shame that some of the very famous Ivorian football players in the Premier League, you know, Yaya Toure wasn't there to win with it. You know, Didier Drogba wasn't in that squad to do it as well. He, he's very good at getting very, very good performances out of players that you wouldn't expect. So if he takes uh, charge of uh, France's women's team, uh, I would be slightly concerned if I was uh, Serena because, ooh, <laughs> oh Lord, there's a storm coming. well on that note that is where we're going to wrap this podcast we will be back on Monday to discuss all the international action including England versus Ukraine which is on Sunday night many thanks to Duncan Alexander to Carl Anker to Charlie Eccleshare producer Charlie especially for that final question for us to end on and to you of course the listener have a great weekend and we'll speak to you on Monday You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by LiveScore Bet. Get the latest football betting odds at livescorebet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. 